Writing the Coast, the official podcast of the BC Newcom Book Prizes, where I talk to the authors and illustrators whose books are shortlisted for the annual prizes and celebrate the work being written and read in British Columbia and the Yukon. I'm Megan Cole, your host, and for this episode, I'm thrilled to be sharing the microphone with an extra special co-host, the wonderful Charlotte Gill. Welcome to Writing the Coast, Charlotte. Hi, thank you for having me. No problem. You made the big trip all from like four blocks away. It took me three minutes to get here. (laughs) And you're joining me because our guest today is Alicia Rosnow, the winner of this year's Dorothy Livesay Prize for her book of poetry, Our Familiar Hunger. And you guys have been friends for how many years? (laughs) <laughs> okay, so Leisha and I met in, let's just say, almost 20 years ago when we were in grad school at UBC. We were doing the MFA program, and our one of our first classes together was a fiction workshop. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think it was actually more than 20 years ago, if I have the years correct. I know, but just... We'll go, we'll go with 20-ish. Let's go with 20-ish. Yeah. So we really began our writing careers together. We did. Yeah, I think so. And now, I mean, we've got lots of pages under our belts and things have really um, evolved for the both of us sort of with our craft. And it's really just a complete pleasure to see this novel come out and Leisha's five books of poetry, I believe. Four. Four. Let's not get carried away. Okay. (laughs) And then, (laughs) yeah, so it's just been a complete delight to watch all of this evolve slowly over time and... You know, it takes a long time to learn how to write. So it's just been really a real privilege to get to know somebody's professional life in that way over so many years. Yeah, yeah, likewise. And I mean, because of the magic of the internet, which feels like it was kind of in its infancy when we went to grad school, um, certainly social media wasn't even around. Um, Charlotte and I have for the most part been living in different parts of the province or other provinces for the last I don't know 10 or 15 years probably and so we've been able to not only track each other's career but also support each other and be in contact and all that good stuff and I think what's also really interesting is the fact that our writing often surprises even us because we don't necessarily know we're going to take a certain tack I mean this novel took quite a while. It's such an enormous story. And I'll ask you a little bit about that later, Leisha. But probably there were elements about this story that really surprised you as well. I I don't know if when we met, you would have said, yes, I'm going to write a very heavily researched historical novel. <laughs> and it's going to take me nine years. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Probably not. But yeah, we can we can unpack that. Well, maybe we'll start off um, with, we'll go to Our Familiar Hunger. And Alicia, would you mind reading a poem from your beautiful book of poetry? Sure. I am going to read a poem, poem called, hmm, I actually can't decide, and these are on facing pages. I'm going to read after winter, even though we're just, we're at before winter. This is what we have to look forward to after winter. I push windows against frames until they give up, spit out splinters of paint on the sills when they are finally open. The wind welcome to round its great mouth, blow until shards confetti the floor. 
I'll leave the floors unswept, close the curtains white and billowed as, I, as round as a bride at her shotgun wedding. You teach me colloquialisms while oligarchs hold revolvers to our country's temples until we spread our legs like drapery and lie quietly as sounds enter the room. Car horns on the street below, an errant rooster always crowing, a shop radio bleeding out the news of the day, laughter skipping across a playground like a record from the archives. I've heard the woman from the next farm gave birth to a girl, premature, her skin furred like a small animal. Perhaps the baby is mutant, because she opened her eyes yesterday for the first time and cried, smother the sky, before she started to howl. I've heard the baby is struggling to suckle. Thank you, Glacia. Um, I wanted to ask you about the the voices and the characters in Our Familiar Hunger. Who who were these women and these people that you were kind of drawing from for this book? My initial inspiration was my own Baba, uh, my maternal grandmother, who immigrated to Canada when she was 17 and she came on her own. Um, she had been living in what was then Poland, but she's ethnically Ukrainian and is now Ukraine again. It's now Western Ukraine with her mother. And the two of them were employed by wealthy landowners. So they were essentially peasants or serfs and uh, they worked in the house. So I'm not entirely sure what they did, um, house cleaning or worked in the kitchen. I like to believe that she was a laundress um, because she had a great love. My Baba had a great love of fabric and textiles afterwards. So I just like to think that she was the laundress. <laughs> I, that's just based purely on my imagination. Um, um, and her stepfather had already immigrated to Canada. Her biological father and I think an older brother or two um, were killed in some sort of conflict, uh, like a, a war kind of conflict, although no one in the family quite knows because there were so many different small conflicts in that part of the world. Um, but that's the family story that the, um, the father was father and possibly an older brother or two were already gone. The mother had remarried and the stepfather doesn't sound like he was a super great guy. Um, maybe had a drinking problem. He immigrated to, um, the prairies to, uh, a community around, um, Edmonton. And the mother stayed home. The mother was like, <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> I'll just stay here in Ukraine. You go on with your own bad self. Um, and then my grandma, when she was 17, um, again, this is sort of family legend. She wrote to her stepdad and she asked for either a pair of red leather shoes or a ticket to Canada. And both of the things would have been absolutely unrealistic right like who's going to send the 17 year old peasant girl a pair of red leather shoes who's going to send her a ticket to canada lo and behold he sent her to the ticket to canada so she came over on her own at 17 and um as many immigrants did and still do went immediately to the community where she knew the most people where other people from her area of ukraine um other er people from her own village had immigrated and that's where she met very shortly after arriving my grandfather who had immigrated when he was five and they're from i went there last year to western ukraine 
they're from villages that are walking distance away wow. in Ukraine. Um, so she married, had a family. I'm part of that family. So she was part of the initial um, inspiration. She and women like her, who immigrated in the early part of the last century and left quite a bit of hardship and poverty in Ukraine and unwittingly came into quite a bit of hardship and poverty in Canada. Um, and then I jumped forward to looking at more contemporary waves of immigration, um, specifically, again, of women from Eastern Europe, and more contemporary ways of women leaving um, either conflict zones or poverty, wanting a better life, um, and that being internet dating, internet marriage, sometimes the global sex trade. Um, so I, yeah, the poems kind of span from the beginning of the last century to the beginning of this century. And very few of them are autobiographical. A couple are for sure based on my Baba. Um, but a lot of them are based on reading, speaking with other people. Um, yeah, I don't know how much longer you want me to keep going, but <laughs> that probably covers it-ish. Oh, and I, I think it's so, it was interesting for me to read um, Our Familiar Hunger and then uh, read Little Fortress because I think there there seems to be so much overlap in these women who you're so interested in talking about in your work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Little Fortress is also about immigrants from Europe, but a very different kind of immigrant, right? Yeah. So uh, immigrants from Italy and um, very, very wealthy uh, royal and noble immigrants. So um, very different in some ways, and yet um, very similar in others, in that the women who, the women in Little Fortress who come to Canada, uh, they, they haven't really chosen it in any, by any stretch of the imagination. So Ophelia comes because her, uh, her husband, the Duke Leone Caetani, has decided to set forth to the new world and has decided to move to the Okanagan. And she doesn't have much of a choice. She doesn't, she doesn't have much of a choice to do anything but follow him, even though she really does not want to go. And when she gets here, really does not like it. Um, and then their daughter is four at the time. So again, not much of a choice. And then the book is told from their paid companion, um, not a housemaid, not a nanny, but someone we, we would call like a personal assistant now, and her name is Ms. Yule, and she's always worked, well, she's mostly worked in service of wealthier families. Um, it's 1921, she's single, she's in her early 30s, so when her, the wealthy family with whom she's employed, ups and moves to Canada, again, she's like, well, I guess, I'll, I guess I'm gonna go as well. Um, yeah, so there's this sense of, larger societal and cultural and political forces um, moving these women around and them getting into situations that they then feel very confined and want to escape from. Mm -hmm. I kind of saw that overlap too between these themes of old worlds coming to the new and then really large contrast between people who've come from poverty and this incredible wealth and just the really strange clashes that those create. 
And I'm wondering, Leisha, how is it that you decide that, say, one story idea is really suited towards poetry and, say, a story like The Kaitani Family, that is more appropriate to a novel? And also, can you tell us a little bit how you built this story? Because I know it's been several years in the making and anyone who reads the book can see that there's an intense amount of research that's gone into it. And what I'm really curious about is this treasure trove of journals and letters that you found that mm-hmm. started the whole process rolling. Mm-hmm. But the idea has been with you for a really long time. Is that right? That's correct. So, um, yeah, in terms of how to decide what what form any story is going to take, these two books actually intersected a, a lot farther back. They probably intersected about hmm, 12 or more years ago. So Charlotte knows that in between my first novel, The Sudden Weight of Snow, 17 years ago, <laughs> and this novel, Little Fortress, I wrote another novel, uh, which I set aside and didn't see the light of day. And um, when I set it aside, I still had that impulse that I really want to write another novel. And um, the reason I know it was about 12 years ago is I was heavily pregnant with my first child. And um, so I had this kind of really intense, desperate feeling around like, oh, I want to write another novel. I have to start it now. I have to start researching it now. And the novel that I conceived of then um, led to the research that led to the book of poetry, Our Familiar Hunger. So at that time, I was already interested in um, the immigration at the beginning of last century, the immigration of this century, the reality of um, Eastern European women's lives, living in conflict zone, escaping poverty, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But somewhere in the process, it became a book of poems. and that could have been because at the beginning part of the process, I had uh, two babies. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably a big part of it. So I could distill these thoughts and sort of images down to poetry much more easily than um, expand them into a novel. And shortly after I had the two babies, one was a newborn and one was two, we moved back to Vernon, which is where I had grown up. And it was almost, it wasn't, it wasn't fully intentional (laughs) to move back to Vernon. And I was in a bit of a haze because we moved with a newborn and a two-year-old. And then we moved on to a bird sanctuary, um, which is really cool, but also like, what are we doing? <laughs> so I kind of came to about a year later when the kids were one and three. Um, yeah, just feeling like, what am I doing back in Vernon? Like, this was not supposed to happen. This was not part of the plan. And I'd run into my 17-year-old self downtown at the library or at the museum where I used to hang out. And my 17-year-old self would say, you know, Leisha, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be here. Because I had had such an intense feeling of wanting to get out of Vernon as a teen. Um, So that 17-year-old self and 30-whatever-year-old self decided, well, now is the time I can start researching um, the Kaitani family. Because I've been interested in their story ever since I first heard it. And I thought, well, if I'm going to live in Vernon, 
I might as well start researching that story. And I really didn't know if I was going to write it as poetry, as creative nonfiction, um, or as a novel. And it became a novel. So I think I only answered one part of your question, Charlotte. Admittedly, so you- it was about a seven-part question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the, the Kaitani family, they had a home in Vernon that they had purchased, I believe, uh, in the early 1900s. Is that right? Yeah, they moved in 1921. So the father, who is the Duke and Prince, uh, Duke Leone uh, Catani de Sermonetta, we'll just call him either Leone or the Duke. Um, he had he was quite a bit older than um, the mother. Uh, I think by this time he was in his late 40s, early, no, he was probably in his early 50s. And so when he was a young man, he had set forth, as many young, wealthy people did then and now, to explore the world. And one of the places, I mean, he went all over the world. Um, but one of the places he went was to BC, to the Selkirk Mountains, to go grizzly bear hunting. <laughs> and this was 1899. And I read letters of his his uh, adventures in the Selkirks, um, wearing like a, a bear skin sort of coat and he had an indigenous guide and you know all that sort of that scene um and fast forward about 20 years and he is wanting to leave italy because he was not only a duke and a prince he was um an islamic scholar who wrote an 11 volume annals of islam so he also had a a very um, abiding interest in Islamic culture, um, and he was a a parliamentarian and a minister at the same time that Mussolini was also a minister, so Mussolini was not yet in power, Um, and they, Leone and Mussolini at one point had very similar kind of socialist, democratic ideals, and they obviously went different directions, and Leone could see, the Duke could see that the direction that Mussolini was taking Italian parliament um, and eventually taking all of Italy was one that he wanted no part of. So he was looking for a place to go, to move his family, um, his much younger wife and his little girl. And he had this abiding interest in, um, in Islam, but that wasn't really an option to move to the Middle East or, um, so he decided to move to the new world and he had really liked BC and he heard there was another part of BC that was more like Italy in terms of landscape and, um, climate. Mm -hmm. So he sort of, it kind of sounds like he spun the globe around a bit and then his finger landed on Vernon and this is where they moved. And you kind of get a sense of how, possibly arbitrary that decision was when the women of his family arrive in Vernon and there's this really entertaining moment of why have you brought us here (laughs) so I mean this family they were nobility with the exception of Miss Ewell but Mm -hmm. they are also um really fish out of water in this place and once they move into the little fortress of the title things begin to get very strange and interesting there are all kinds of secrets and lies 
And I want to know a little bit about how you began to find out about what went on behind these closed doors. Yeah. So I do remember in your seven part question, some of it was about the letters and diaries. So Sueva Kaitani, the daughter um, and the person who is the most known, notorious, infamous, whatever in Vernon um, was this larger than life personality. She was the daughter who was in seclusion for 25 years. She came out and eventually was very well adjusted and got a university education and became a teacher and became this absolutely amazing artist. Um, and she was also six foot one and just had this huge personality. So she was the person in the Okanagan Valley who was known. And she was the person when she died in 1994, she left her home, the former little fortress <laughs> to be an arts and cultural center in Vernon. And she left all of the family papers to the, Vernon Museum and Archives. So that was my entry into um, their inner lives through their own words. So interestingly, there were a lot of papers, letters, postcards, cards, little notes, everything um, from when they arrived in 1921 um, and even some previous, like some with Leone sort of making contact with realtors. Um, estate agents, as they were called at the time, uh, before they arrived. Um, so, I mean, there was everything. There was the house sale, there were investment statements, there were medical statements, and then there was this trove of actual letters between actual people. Um, until, and I didn't realize it until I was partway through the years, they were in seclusion from 1935 to 1960. And I was partway part through those years in the archives, and I realized oh, there's no more personal letters in here. There's banking statements. Um, there's sort of medical reports. Um, there's some kind of shopping lists. And so as a novelist, partly I wanted to, I was very curious as to A, what happened to all those letters and B, what happened to the women? So I used the letters before they went into seclusion and then the letters pick up like almost immediately. They come out of seclusion when the mother Ophelia dies in 1960. And right after that, there's letters of condolence about the mother and then letters pick up again. So I used the letters on either side of the seclusion to um, extrapolate and make up what happened when they were in that house for 25 years. That's to re that seems to be really at the heart of the story, this relationship between these two women, Miss Yule and her charge. Um, mm -hmm. That's really kind of like the love story inside the book. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that relationship and also Miss Yule, who is the narrator of the story and has her own long journey. Yeah, so I was really fascinated by Miss Yule even before I read her papers. Um, because, like I said earlier, in this community where Sueva Kaitani is known, she is the person who's known. And her relationship with her mother, her very sort of intense and dysfunctional relationship with her mother, is also well known and part of sort of local yore. Um, and then, of course, her father has this very dramatic um Roman nobility background so he was well known and when I would hear about the story or read about the story this character this person 
Ms. Ewell was always kind of a footnote. And even when I would speak to people, um, they would speak about Sueva sort of striding down the streets of Vernon in all her majesty. And then this little diminutive Ms. Ewell kind of just scurrying along behind her. So Sueva, I think, was about 6'1 or 6'2. And I think Ms. Ewell was about 4'11. So you can picture that. Um, and I just thought, who was this woman? And how did she... How did she end up entangled with this family of eccentric, uh, isolated nobility? Um, what's her background? So when I went into the archives, I was delighted to find out that at some point previous to me being there, um, a friend of the archivist at the time uh, was from Denmark, and she translated all of Ms. Ewell's papers from her native Danish into English. And so without that translation, I wouldn't have been privy to what lay therein. And what lay therein was fascinating. <laughs> I was like, Ms. Ewell, this woman led this absolutely, for the time, even for now, adventurous international life of sort of romance and tragedy and intrigue, even before getting together with the Kaitanis. So once I found that out, I was like, well, I want to tell this person's story. Um, and again, Charlotte, I can't remember the other part of the question. <laughs> and you? That's beautiful. Okay. I wanted to dive in a little bit to these women. And because you're telling women's stories, and especially historically, these women's stories would have lived in the archives. They would have mm -hmm. never been told, especially Miss Ewell, who is, you know, the help. Um, she, her story would not have been one that people would have talked about very much. And the same goes for our familiar hunger. These are immigrant women who were not being um, written about in history books. What pulls you to these stories, to these women who otherwise would likely be forgotten? Well, exactly that, right? So um, the the fact that they would have they would have been forgotten if it if not, if not for me, but it, if not for people's curiosity and other artists and writers and playwrights and filmmakers taking an interest in the stories behind the larger um, historically, you know, this, the kind of settler narratives and the patriarchal narratives that we hear over and over and over and we see represented over and over and over. Um, in the case of Our Familiar Hunger, like I said earlier, my initial inspiration was my Baba, and she was illiterate. She was illiterate both in um, English and also Ukrainian. She didn't know how to read or write in English or Ukrainian. She didn't speak in English either. Um, a little bit. We could sort of kind of get by, but we mostly got by by she talking to me in Ukrainian and <laughs> me responding in English and neither of us having any clue what the other was saying, except we did. Um, so a woman like her, and she wouldn't have been unique amongst um, immigrants of that era, uh, there wouldn't even be, there wouldn't be written records left because she couldn't read or write. Um, so what is left is what's passed on um, through story. So, yeah, I mean, the stories as a woman, 
other women's stories fascinate me. And as an author and just as a person in the world, other people's secrets and emotional motivations and ways that they get into these very entangled situations also fascinate me. So what better things to write about? Yeah, and I mean, one example just from Little Fortress was uh, when we find out the truth about the Duke and Ophelia's marriage. I mean, that was heartbreaking to read to me. I mean, especially, you know, as a modern woman, you read this now and you just think how how awful that must have been for her. Yeah, and there was a great deal of secrecy around it, even to... So when I first started researching the novel... um, eight, nine years ago, uh, there were a couple of women still alive who were very close with Sueva and quite close with Ms. Ewell. So one of them was Joan Harriet, and she is a woman who could have an entire series of novels, miniseries written about her life. And the first time I met her, I think she was 98 or 99, and she eventually passed away at 101 and a half. Wow. <laughs> you get the half back <laughs> once you're like past a certain age. And when I met her at age 99 or whatever it was, she had, I mean, her both her memory of the distant past, but also just her memory of the day was absolutely solid. And her mind was completely sharp. And um, she was very, very close with Sueva. They were best friends. Um, they were... Um, yeah, their I, their relationship as well could be another set of novels or um, books or films. Um, so I was going to say soulmates. It sounds so cheesy, but I think they were soulmates. And when I was speaking to her about Sueva, she was very protective about her memory, which was fantastic, as she should be, as someone who loved her and wanted to protect her in her life, wants to protect her after her death. Um and she was also protective of the secrets in Sveva's parents' marriage, which I found really interesting that she, there was this sense that she didn't want me or anyone else to be talking too much about that. Um, so I disregarded that. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky for us. <laughs> I hope that's okay with Joan Harriet. Rest your soul. Um, I think it would be, I'd like to believe it would be, but yeah, so those kind of the, the secrets that people carry with them that wouldn't be secrets now. So, uh, you know, the issues around the parents' marriage now would not really be issues at all. Um, and a lot of the issues in little fortress, um, around premarital sex mm-hmm. and, uh, pregnancy out of marriage and, um, possible termination of pregnancies or, um, you know, what to do with the child who is born, all of those things wouldn't be as much of an issue now. Um, but I get the sense that people carry that sort of sense of shame and secrecy, even as current mores change, if they, they carry them from their youth. Well, I'm thinking maybe we'll have you because we've talked so much about Little Fortress now, if you wouldn't mind uh, reading a little bit from your beautiful novel. Sure. And I'm going to read from the beginning, the easiest. Um, So I'm going to actually read from the prologue, which begins in Canada in 1945. 
And as a little bit of background, um, there are there are three women are already in seclusion. They've been in seclusion for about a decade. They went in, in 1935. And it's from the point of view of Ms. Yule. So that's who's speaking. And I think that's all you need to know. Canada, 1945. Could you call that singing? I suppose, though that might be overstatement. Ophelia has tried her voice at opera to varying success. Once her voice was said to be lovely, but this sound is more like squalling. I try to ignore it, go about my morning. I'm in the kitchen, rewashing re china and silver, my hands pink and raw in scalding water. The window faces east, and a blurred hem of sunlight has begun to saturate the top of the hills along the back of the property. Ophelia asks that we do this, wash everything after it's been used, and once more before we drink or eat from it again. I suppose she wouldn't know if we didn't do so every time, yet I feel as though I should. There are larger things I keep from her. I can be truthful about fulfilling her smaller wishes. When she woke, she sounded so strange. I mean no disrespect to Ophelia. She's still every part a lady, but grief moves through her as feral as a cat. Every few minutes she lets out a yowl, just as I do when Sveva startles me, suddenly at my shoulder. Can you not hear that, Ms. Ewell? I turn from the sink and take a step to the side to give myself some space. I clutch silverware wrapped in a towel between us, the warmth dissolving in the cool morning air. Can you not hear her? Sueva's hair is loose, a mess. Her eyes circled in a faint burgundy as though bruised. It is early for her. She was probably still awake until only a few hours ago. Ophelia likes her daughter to sleep beside her each night. But lately, Sueva has been staying up well into the night to read likely to avoid this. She's 27 years old, after all, and her mother is not a sound sleeper. I can. I unwrap the spoons, place one on the tray with the teapot and cups. I can hear her. From the clock in the hall, six round chimes. When I was first up, I let the dogs out of their kennel, and I can hear them circling the house, barking. Be thankful it's not earlier. Sveva blinks, runs her palms over her hair, then reaches for me. Oh, my Miss Yuliul. She pushes me into her chest as though I am the child. She is so tall and I so small that there I am against the buttons of her gown. I'm sorry. When she started, I was in the middle of a dream, all these garish spirals and spikes folding in on me. I woke up panicked. Sveva lets me go. I've been up reading physics again. I know, I know, I shouldn't. I should read my dear Austin before I sleep. She leaves me with better dreams. Upstairs, her mother is still keening, although what began as a howl has lessened to moaning. I pick up the tray. We should go to her. Yes, of course. By the time we reach the top of the stairs, Ophelia's sounds are more like a kitten's muse. And when I knock on the door, it is silent except for her fate. Yes, come in, in Italian, always Italian. In my lifetime, I've taught myself English, French, Italian, even a little Arabic. We've lived in Canada for over two decades, and Ophelia still will not speak much English. She sits up in the bed, pillows behind her, palms smoothing the white bedding. Oh, look, you're both here. I see a slight jump in her hands from her lap. You are both here, she says again with less enthusiasm. Of course we are, Mao. Sueva moves around the room, swaying slightly as though she may begin dancing. I wait with the tray. I don't want to be intercepted by her. Ophelia's head is high on the pillows, her lips a slack line. 
Sueva drops her shoulders, rolls her neck slightly. She shivers once, rubs her arms. And I, for one, do not want to be awake this early. Let me into bed. Sueva leaps onto the bed, a six-foot girl in a too-small gown. Ophelia puts her hand on Sueva's head. Oh, my bail. My mamo. Their terms of endearment have no translation, but they've been calling each other these names for years, so it doesn't matter. Sueva closes her eyes, her head large against her mother's slim shoulder. I stand beside the bed without pouring tea. I don't want it to cool too soon, though it is already losing some heat. Sueva opens her eyes, tips back her head, and lets out one sharp laugh. Oh, Yule, how ridiculous we are. Two crazy old ladies, and yet you stay with us. She stays with us, Mao. Where did you find her? Our blessed Scandinavian virgin. This is one of their nicknames for me, as inappropriate as it may be. You may think me complicit in our situation, and perhaps I am. After all, what happened to us can't have been from one person's will alone. You are so good, a man once told me, better than me, stronger. When I wrote to him about my body racked with pain, my mind muddied with grief, he repeated, be good, be strong. The words were clear on the page between those that had been censored by authorities during the war. Soon more phrases than entire sentences were blacked out, until one day the letters stopped. When they did, I lay on a terrace in the lovely sunshine and thought of how easy it would be to die. It was cowardly to think like that. To die is easy, to have the courage to keep living is what is difficult. I promised myself then that I would become good at living. How good have I been? I'll tell you the story and let you decide. It begins in so many places, at so many times, loops back, repeats itself in infinite patterns. I'll choose a place to begin yet again. Hmm. That's lovely. Thank you. So a, a couple things from that are directly from the archive. So the, uh, the nickname Scandinavian Virgin, which is what this novel was called as a work in progress for so many years, um, came directly from letters in which the family was referring to Ms. Yule as their Scandinavian Virgin. <laughs> and then once I read Ms. Yule's papers, I was like, well, maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. <laughs> <laughs> not so much. And then heartbreakingly, that last little bit, I didn't often take um, phrases directly from letters or journals. I, I tried to take more of their voice and their cadence of speaking. But the phrase, um, this is directly from one of Ms. Ewell's journals, translated from Danish into English. But the um, I lay on the terrace in the lovely sunshine and thought of how easy it would be to die. And it was cowardly to think like that. To die is easy. That is, those were directly from one of her journals. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm keeping her alive, whether she likes it or not. <laughs> I feel like I have so many more questions, but um, maybe we'll just leave it there for today and just leave it to everyone else to go and pick up your beautiful novel and our familiar hunger and they should all just go out to all of your events and ask these brilliant questions themselves. Yeah, they should. <laughs> they should. Well, thank you so much, Leitcha, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Megan and Charlotte. 
And thank you, Charlotte, for being my wonderful co-host. It was so fun. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you again to both Laisha and Charlotte. And for more about BC and Yukon Book Prizes and our podcast, be sure to visit our new website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. Yay!